Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hey Dave. Yeah Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Mummy Movie Podcast, where in this episode, we shall be looking into Blood from the Mummy's Tomb from 1971. In terms of the format of the episode, it's going to be the same as usual. We shall start with a little background information on the film, then there will be a section on historical accuracy, and finally I shall review the film, saying what I like and dislike about it, and just giving my overall impressions as well. Okay, let us not waste any more time. We are creeping through the tomb of a queen of darkness. As we arrive at the burial chamber, we push the lid off of the ornate coffin to reveal a perfectly preserved body. However, the hand of the mummy has been removed, and even now the wound looks oddly fresh. Slowly, something begins to seep out of the wound. We gaze upon the blood from the mummy's tomb. Okay, in this section, I'm just going to go over some of the background information on the film, talking about general stories uh, and the cast, things like that. So, to start with, it's probably worth noting that this film was a second feature status film to another Hammer Horror film, Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. And as such, it was kind of always viewed as a secondary priority, unfortunately. Interestingly, the film was actually based on the Bram Stoker novel, Jewel of the Seven Stars, which does actually lead it to being a slightly different style of mummy movie, which, you know, is a good thing, I guess. Interestingly, Peter Cushing was actually supposed to play the part of Julian Fuchs, but he only managed to do one day of shooting before having to stop to care for his wife, because unfortunately she had been diagnosed with emphysema. Although I will say that... 
Andrew Keir, who ended up replacing Peter Cushing as Julian Fuchs, did a really good job and he was a very worthy replacement. Unfortunately, Peter Cushing having to leave wasn't the only setback of this film and it was actually sort of cursed in a way. Because before the film had even fully completed, the director, Seth Holtz, unfortunately died of a heart attack. This is actually sort of tragic as he was only 47 years old. And it basically led to Michael Carreras, the head of Hammer Studios, finishing the film in his place. In terms of the cast, as already mentioned, Julian Fuchs is played by Andrew Keir. His daughter and main character, Margaret, who also plays the parts of Queen Tara, is played by Valerie Leon. Corbeck, the sort of main villain, is played by James Villiers. And finally, Mark Edwards plays Todd Browning, who's essentially Margaret's boyfriend. Now I shall go over the historical background of the film. The film starts in ancient Egypt, where Queen Tara is... She's not really being mummified, necessarily. She's sort of being placed in a state of suspended animation. So she's still alive, but she can't move, and she's going to stay like that for thousands of years, essentially. Unsurprisingly, this wasn't actually done in ancient Egypt, and it's really just for the film. When we first see Queen Terra, the camera starts to pan slowly up her body, starting at her feet. She's wearing a toe ring which has a scorpion on it, and it looks like it's made from either copper or gold. I'd imagine it's probably supposed to be gold. Some toe rings have actually been found from ancient Egyptian sites. For instance, a couple were found at Amarna, and another one was found at the temple complex of Karnak. Although it probably should be noted that they don't look anything like the one from the film, and the one from the film would actually be really impractical to walk with. As the camera continues to pan up, you notice she's wearing a bead collar. These are generally known as broad collars, and they were present in Egypt from the Old Kingdom onwards, so there's no problem with her wearing this necessarily. Although <laughs> it is kind of noticeable she's basically naked from the waist up and the beads are very strategically placed to keep the uh, age rating down I guess. On the broad collar there's quite a lot of blue coloured beads. This kind of bead is actually really common in ancient Egypt and it's made from a material called Egyptian faience. I would be quite surprised if you personally had not seen quite a few examples of Egyptian faience. Because it was used to make quite a few things in ancient Egypt, such as bowls and amulets and shabti figures, so servant figures that were used to serve the deceased in the afterlife. It was, it was so frequent. When you look at it, you almost think that it's a kind of clay, but in reality it's actually a lot closer to glass than clay, but it's a lot more porous. So basically... It's made by crushing either quartz or sand, mixing in a small amount of lime and adding either plant ash or natron. So natron is essentially the salts that you find on the banks of the Nile. A soda lime 
silica glaze is then applied, which turns a bluey green when fired due to the presence of copper. If you are interested in seeing some of the objects made from faience, I would do a quick look online because they really are quite beautiful. Or at least I think they are anyway. But remember to put Egyptian faience, not just faience in, because they are actually different things. When we arrive at the head of Queen Terra, she's wearing quite an elaborate headpiece. Headpieces were actually worn by queens, so this isn't really an issue. Although the example in the film, there isn't anything like it from ancient Egypt. I feel if I was making this film, I would have had her wearing a vulture crown. Because these were present right from the Old Kingdom. And vultures are linked to the goddess Nekbet, who was the patron of southern Egypt. The main reason I would have done this is because above Queen Terra's actual coffin, there is a depiction of Nekbet. And also simply because the vulture crown was commonly worn by queens. When it comes to the crowns that the priests in this scene are wearing, they're pretty hysterically wrong, to be honest. One priest has a really weird-looking crown that almost seems to be an interpretation of the double crown of Egypt, which was only worn by the pharaoh, so he would not have been wearing that. It's kind of weird because... The white crown, which normally looks a bit like a bowling pin, has been kind of made to look quite jagged, whilst the red crown, which would normally go around the outside of the white crown, has kind of almost been made to just look like a tent. It's, it's very bizarre. Another priest is wearing a blue capresh crown, which again was only worn by the pharaoh and usually was only worn during war as well. I've seen this crown a couple of times during the Hammer Horror films, and I feel it must have just been one of the props I had lying around. Another of the priests is wearing a Nemes headrest, which again, was only worn by the pharaoh. For an idea of what this headpiece looks like, have a look at the very, very famous coffin of Tutankhamun. Basically, the big thing around the top of his head that's kind of gold and blue and striped, that's a Nemes headpiece. The priests then go on to chop off the hand of Queen Terra, and it's quite noticeable that they rest her hand on a palette. This palette would have actually been used for mixing and applying makeup. So it definitely, definitely, definitely would not have been used to chop off someone's hand. Once they have chopped off her hand, they throw it out of the tomb and immediately jackals jump on it and start devouring it. Jackals were at least associated with cemeteries in ancient Egypt. So this does kind of make sense. And in fact, I remember being on a dig in Luxor once when we actually had a couple of dogs that were hanging around the cemetery we were excavating. So even now, you do get dogs hanging around those areas. After the opening scene, we come to the present day, so 1971. And the next scene that we can sort of say anything about in terms of Egyptology would be the office of Jeffrey, who's an Egyptologist. There are quite a few statues around his office of various gods. For instance, uh, there's a statue of Sobek, who was a crocodile-headed god, who was commonly found in the Fayum region of Egypt, which is quite a swampy area where, unsurprisingly, there's quite a lot of crocodiles. There's also a statue of the Apis Bull, which is actually a really interesting god. 
The Apis Bull was present in Egypt from at least the First Dynasty and continued to be worshipped in Egypt until about the 4th century CE, making it one of Egypt's longest surviving cults. Apis had his cult centre at Memphis, which was a city in ancient Egypt whose ruins can be found in Cairo today. And in fact, at Saqqara, where you get the pyramids and things like that, there's actually a place called the Serapium where all of the Apis bulls would be buried. And they were actually mummified with the same care it would take to mummify a king. The Apis bull was generally associated with Ptah in life and after it had been mummified, it would then come to be associated with Osiris, the god of the underworld. There really is so much information on the Apis bull and to be honest with you, I could barely scratch the surface in this podcast. When it comes to some of the other statues in Jeffrey's office, they actually appear to be more Greek than Egyptian. For instance, one of the statues is quite clearly of Medusa, the snake-headed Greek gorgon. Later still in the film, we see Julian and his expedition as they discover the tomb of Queen Terra. This is actually a flashback scene to about, I think it's about 20 years earlier. And at this point, they make it known that they don't actually know the name of Queen Terra because her name has been erased from history. This is actually a practice that the ancient Egyptians did with people that they didn't particularly like. So, for instance, I always use this guy, but I'm going to use him again. Akhenaten's name was erased from history because he tried to get rid of all of the gods in Egypt and make everyone worship the Aten, so the disc of the sun. So essentially what the ancient Egyptians would do is they'd go away and they'd chip all of the instances where his name had been written on walls and things like that. The reason they do this is because it was believed that if you weren't remembered in this life then you couldn't survive in the next life either. On top of that, the ancient Egyptians believed that your name held a special significance to you and your personality. And so, by erasing it, you're essentially erasing that person's personality and just them as a whole as well. However, when they do eventually get into the tomb of Queen Terra, they do actually find her name. And they show the hieroglyphs and Geoffrey goes, we finally have her name. She's called Terra. The actual hieroglyphs shown actually read Aru, which, as far as I'm aware, isn't an actual Egyptian name, but, you know, I could be wrong. I suspect it's probably just a few random hieroglyphs they found. In terms of the name Tara, once again, that's not a real Egyptian name, and instead it comes from the actual novel Jewel of the Seven Stars that this film is based on. They also state that they find her tomb in the Valley of the Sorcerer, which again is just a location from the book and not a real place. It is interesting, however, that Queen Terra's tomb does seem to be based on real Egyptian tombs, but the iconography does look a bit funky and off. For instance, the image of Nekbet that I mentioned earlier that you see above Queen Terra's coffin is mostly right. But the artist has mistaken the Shen rings, which Nekbet commonly holds in her claws and symbolise eternal protection, for small jars instead. So there's just little things like that that are just slightly wrong and off. In terms of actual accuracy, 
This film is pretty poor, to be honest. But, in fairness, it does need to be remembered that its main source of inspiration was the book, The Jewel of the Seven Stars, rather than Egyptian history. Now we shall move on to the review part of this episode. I shall start with the parts I quite liked. The acting in the film, for the most part, is pretty decent, and also I thought the casting was generally pretty good as well. As said earlier, Peter Cushing was supposed to play the part of Julian in this film, and I do think he would have been really good in that part, but I actually find it quite hard to visualise anyone other than Andrew Keir playing the part, which does speak to how suited he was for it. I also quite like that you don't get the typical bandaged mummy in this film. In general, it's actually really interesting that they've got the mummy as sort of quite a beautiful woman. Because that actually goes back to the very early Victorian novels about mummies. Uh, for instance, such as the short story The Mummy's Foot, and actually even the film that this one's based on, Jewel of the Seven Stars by Bram Stoker. As they, they tended to weirdly kind of like romanticise the mummy. And it was only really in about the 1930s when you got the Boris Karloff film that the idea of the bandaged mummy as the villain becomes more popular. I do feel that this helps to separate this film from other mummy movies. Finally, I thought that the ending of this film was suitably ambiguous for the tone of the film. It is worth noting that it has a different ending to The Jewel of the Seven Stars by Bram Stoker. And while this may annoy some people, it also needs to be said that Jewel of the Seven Stars itself had two different endings, as the ending to the book was later changed. So it's not really that big a problem that it's decided to go with a unique ending. I would go into more detail in this, but in case there's people out there who want to actually watch the film, I'll leave my analysis of it there. Now I shall go on to the parts I liked for the wrong reason. So the parts I essentially found funny that weren't meant to be funny. Firstly, Margaret, the main character in the film, gets given a ring by her father. And everyone's like obsessed with how beautiful and unique the ring is. In reality, it's quite clearly just a cheap prop ring, and it's not unique at all. I don't really understand why they wouldn't have picked a better ring, considering it was quite a big part of the plot. Secondly, during the expedition scene when Julian actually finds the ring, he quite happily just plucks it off of the cut-off hand of Queen Terra and just pops it into his pocket. He does this in front of the rest of the team, and none of the very experienced archaeologists or Egyptologists have any problem with this whatsoever. Although, admittedly, later on the rest of the team starts taking things from the tomb as well, and they just keep those things around their houses. It is worth noting, I suppose, that, as said multiple times, this film is based on Jewel of the Seven Stars, which was released in 1903 when such activities were far more accepted. But at the same time, this film is set in the 1970s when the ethics around archaeology had changed. The film changed several other aspects of the book, so I don't quite understand why they didn't change this one in some way or other. I suppose, however, realistically I'm coming at this from the perspective of an archaeologist, 
when in reality the average viewer of this film isn't going to care about these kind of aspects. I shall now move on to the sections of this film that I just didn't like. The film is incredibly disjointed and badly laid out. The plot actually isn't that complicated and it seems to have needlessly been made hard to follow. In fact, the first time I watched this I was just confused and it was only on the second viewing that some of the parts started to actually piece together in my mind. Because you don't really get to know the characters in the film that well and because the film with every scene tries to be quite mysterious it almost comes across as each scene is completely separate from the last and you're always just watching like a series of different and unconnected events and this really isn't a very good way of making a film in my opinion. Throughout the film we're supposed to see Margaret become gradually more evil as Queen Terra slowly takes over but to be honest with you partly because again you don't really get to know the characters her becoming evil just seems quite random and it isn't really explained very well. You do see a few scenes where she struggles with her morals a little bit, but they're not really focused on enough and so she just comes across as sort of unlikable more than anything. This is really weird because Valerie Leon, who plays Margaret, the main character, actually has quite a likeable presence about her. And it's almost as if the film is trying to force you not to like her when... In reality, you are actually supposed to like her character, so it's just confusing, to be honest with you. I get what they were trying to do here, and I do actually think the idea of a good character slowly becoming bad because they're essentially becoming the reincarnation of an ancient Egyptian queen is quite cool, but I don't think they really achieved it. It probably doesn't help that I've actually read Jewel of the Seven Stars before and I'm not actually a very big fan of the book. Bram Stoker's always been a bit of a weird one for me because I absolutely respect the impact he's had. I mean, he created one of the greatest characters of all time with Dracula. But in terms of his actual novels, I've never really been a very big fan and... To be honest with you, Jewel of the Seven Stars, I, I thought it was an incredibly boring and tedious book, to be honest. So, essentially, this is a bad adaption of a book I don't like. So, realistically, I don't think I was ever really going to like this film. In terms of the reviews for this film, they were pretty mixed. Some felt that it was appropriately creepy, whilst others were annoyed that the mummy was not a traditional bandage type. I actually liked that the mummy was a bit different here. However, rather than creepy, I felt that the film was more boring and disjointed, to be honest. It almost felt like the film was trying to be mysterious to the point where it didn't want to give anything away, even when the plot needed to be advanced. I absolutely respect anyone who likes this film. After all, there are a lot of positives here, I also just feel there was very little chance of me ever liking this film because I just don't like the source material. Thank you very much for listening and if you've enjoyed this episode please consider subscribing. I also just want to thank anyone who's gotten in contact with me because it's really nice to hear from people who are listening. So 
If you do have any questions or suggestions or even any criticisms, please don't hesitate in getting in contact with me. You can send me a message at mummymoviepodcast at gmail.com. I shall put that address in the episode description and also just the overall podcast description as well. However, ultimately, I don't really mind how you get in contact with me. Once again, thank you very much for listening and please join me next week when we shall be looking at The Awakening from 1980. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.